Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Dr. Norm O'Reilly. Norm is a leading scholar in the business of sports, serving as a professor of marketing and sports management, as well as the dean of the Graduate School of Business at the University of Maine. But he's not just an academic wonk pondering the world from his ivory tower, as Norm has maintained longtime connections to the real-world sports industry via his Toronto-based sports marketing group, the T1 Agency. His latest book is called Business the NHL Way, Lessons from the Fastest Game on Ice, in which he and co-author Rick Burton apply NHL-inspired strategies to make effective decisions in all kinds of different industries. So today we are going to talk about the business of hockey, transferring best practices from the ice to the office, the ultimate business playbook inspired by stories from the National Hockey League. Welcome, Norm, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hi, Andrew. I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I'm in Portland, Maine today in my office at the University of Maine, so nothing exciting. I was in Toronto uh, just last week, so I've been in and out of the great city, and my family lives just north of there, so obviously I know where you are very well. Excellent. Well, as you approach the holiday break in the academic year at the University of Maine, what's the vibe like on uh, campus these days? It's it's interesting. So I'm at the MBA program. So the May, the principal campus, the University of Maine, where hockey, as you may know, the Black Bears are a legendary hockey team from the Korea days. And it's been rough for about 15 years. But now there's these two young brothers from New Brunswick called the Nadeaus. And they're now a top 10 ranked team in the country. One of them's been drafted in the first round. Hockey is feverish here. So I've been getting up to as many games as I can. So hockey is flying. The university is pretty quiet as exams happen. And our students are mostly online, so it's a good time of year to be thinking about research and books and all those kind of things. Now, is there anything quite like a Christmas in New England? It's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. I think one of the reasons we really like it here, we're Canadians, is um, it's very Canada-like in terms of its demographics and the weather. There's outdoor rinks all over the place. In fact, I'm going to do my first outdoor shinny game. I still play as an old man, still get out there. Uh, Wednesday night next week will be the first game in our outdoor shinny league. We have a rink. It's got refrigeration underneath. Uh, We mentioned this in the book, but that's the only way in the warming winters you can still have a rink in southern Maine. But uh, we play all winter long outdoors. It's amazing. So that kicks off next week. That is excellent. That is very Canadian. Now, living in a state where your license plates have a lobster on them, I do have to ask if the hype is real. Will you indeed get the best lobster rolls in Maine? Sure, they get the most expensive ones, I'll tell you that, and I, they taste awfully good. Um, it's something that anybody that wants to visit us wants to go. But if you are a local, and you, which we're starting to become, and you know the right places, you can get exceptional ones at a very modest price. But if you're getting one at the, with a lighthouse in the background and the ocean on your left, it's going to cost you the equivalent of a keg dinner, shall we say, in, uh, for a hot dog bun and a little bit of lobster. But they are spectacular. They're really well done. And there's some local ones. Luke's Lobster, I'll do a name drop, is uh, a secret one. They are exceptional. I love it. That's great. Mm-hmm. Some some local research. Now, let's jump right into things. We all want to know, how does a good Canadian boy from Lindsay, Ontario, end up as the dean of a top American business school? Norm, please uh, share your background story. That's right. And thanks for mentioning Lindsay, Ontario, uh, where I born, learned and grew up. It's now called Kawartha Lake. So for all, Lindsay has been mega cityed. But that's where I am from, and, and my parents are still there, and, and most of my family, so I go back a lot. We'll be going there for Christmas, in fact, in a few weeks. I'm very excited about that. 
Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm a very um, ambitious person. So I guess my, if I characterize it very quickly, I was an athlete uh, first. And so I, I was played hockey growing up, but I wasn't that good. My real talents were in on my bike and swimming and running. So a triathlete and then a Nordic skier. So I Nordic skied for the University of Waterloo. We were OUA champions once, and that led me to do some cool things. And then I swam for the University of Ottawa and was team captain with the GGs and then kind of got into triathlon. Not really good, but good enough. I got to go to some world championships and I still, I'm still at it. If I can brag a little bit as a 50 year old, I qualified for the Ironman world championships in September. So I was a bucket lister. So I, uh, it was a big one for me and I've done more than 400 triathlons in my life. So that's a passion for sport. And I still play hockey and all those things I mentioned, but I also developed a passion for business. And so I really it was my third year of Waterloo part of a research project. And as a triathlete, I interviewed the then CEO of Triathlon Canada. And after the interview, I guess he liked me. He offered me a summer job. And that then spiraled. I worked there for a number of years. Bill Howitt was his name. And so that kind of got me on this path. I did some graduate degrees, no intention of being an academic. I worked for Sport Canada, the Toronto 2008 Olympic bid. I worked there. As you know, we didn't win. So it didn't turn out to be such a great thing. But then I got a chance to teach part-time or did master's. I was picking away at a PhD and kind of back-ended into this, this position. I, as you point out, I love it because it's a great platform. Love the students, love all those things, but they can do all these other things. Universities and business schools want you out there publishing and writing and talking and consulting and helping the industry. And so for a guy like me who's super motivated, I, I kind of it's a long answer to your question, but I kind of characterize the athletic view to my career. Like I take it like I do doing a triathlon. We just, you go really hard. And, and so I've been very driven. And then sport is so big in the U S I mean, it's big in Canada. It's so big here. And that's something that really has attracted me and, uh, gone back and forth a little bit. And, and, uh, now I have a chance to be a Dean. So it's been quite a path and been lots of cool places, Syracuse, Stanford, Ohio, uh, now here, Guelph, Laurentian, Ottawa, Ryerson, now Toronto Metropolitan University of Albany wonderful homes along the way. And I think I keep getting better ones as it goes. So it's been great. Well, you have had, as you note, an amazingly varied employment career. Do you have trouble keeping a job or do you just keep getting amazing opportunity after amazing opportunity? That's supposed to be my joke is that I say I don't, uh, I have trouble keeping a job. I, I would, uh, yeah, obviously I would characterize it as, as I'm driven. And if I get any you know opportunities now or calls on the academic side, certainly my T1 side, uh, my consulting life, I've been part owner, been involved for 17 years. It's been pretty stable. But this side, it's, yeah, literally that opportunities. And then the yin and the yang of, of Canada and the U.S. I mean, obviously, I love Canada. I'm Canadian, all of it stands for. But for my career, the opportunities are, like in a lot of fields, right, why a lot of Canadians do end up in the U.S. or Europe, is there's just not a lot in, in my field that's getting better. And then here, sports. So that's been part of it. And then I think the last thing, just I'm awfully ambitious and a bit of an adventurer and want to try different things and people like me. So I get calls. So that's, that's good. I guess that's good. It really is good. Now onto your book, which is called Business the NHL Way, Lessons from the Fastest Game on Ice. Now, after writing 15 academic textbooks with retail price points in the hundreds of dollars, what was the spark to create a much more accessible book that the average Andrew, such as myself, can purchase for thirty two ninety five Canadian in an airport bookstore? Yeah. So yeah, good point. So good question. So we, um, so Rick and I, Rick Burton, who's at Syracuse University, we've been writing for 15 years for Sport Business Journal. And so a lot of people that are in the industry, it's not read by general fans or followers, but it is like the Bible of the sport business industry. So like the VP of marketing for the Blue Jays would have it on their desk 
or on their their screen of their computer, right? If they're if it's a digital version. So we've we've done that for years and have gotten a lot of attention. That was a, and so when the pandemic hit, you know, the pandemic largely was an awful thing, and I would have preferred it never happened, but hey, it did. One of the good things was in people like us is all of a sudden we were and I was at Guelph at the time. We're locked at home. Like we didn't have much to do. So Rick and I got on on the phone and said, Well, we have some time here. It's a risk, right? As you pointed out, a textbook is very structured. We get a deal from a publisher. You don't make any money, but it's going to look good for the uh, for the university. It's going to use it in your classes. So you know what's going to get published before you even type a, a, a letter, right? Provided it's good, I guess. But I mean, you're on a track. This is totally different. Like you have to get published. So the real aspirational book would be Moneyball, which a lot of people probably know and have or at least seen the movie and have read. And so, all right, we love hockey. I've been studying it for a long time. We, we, we've gotten to know, I've done lots of research projects with the commissioner and the NHL and a variety of their people, the Toronto group. I know very well all the marketing people, Rick, the same way. So we kind of threw this around, Got finally got connected with the University of Toronto Press, which after Harvard is probably the biggest university press in North America. So they're significant. And our um, kind of editor that we worked with and the whole team there eventually built and they agreed to do it. They have a huge group of people, wonderful people who have really supported us. And so then we said, hey, this is a book that they wanted to do. It was also out of their normal area. They hadn't done a sport business kind of book before with a very different audience. Like It actually has been picked up in a few classes. But as you say, it's generally to be easy readership. And now the paperback's out. So you can drop that price, I think, in half again, right? So it's just, it's out there. There's an ebook. We did an audio book. Sold out a couple of runs. So it's been really, really great. We've been we've presented it to about eight NHL teams have had us in to talk to their staff or their season ticket holders. We've been some IHL teams, AHL teams. We've been to some of the university teams. And so it's, it's been really great. I've been to the, we, the Kraken. We saw their new arena. We've done the Capitals, Tampa Bay. They're, it's been really, really fun. NHL headquarters in, in Toronto and in and New York. So it's been really good. And it's done. So it's kind of hit a chord. But if you said, what's it like? It's like a money ball, but kind of on chapters. So the NHL. Some people love Batman, don't like him. Some people like the league, where it's gone, how it's set up. But you cannot question how successful they've been. This is chapter two is, wow, like they've gone from uh, a less than a billion dollar league to a six billion dollar league. Sponsorships have gone at the league level from a hundred million to three billion in, in less than 20 years. I mean, just like for any investor, extraordinary growth. So whether love or hate what they've done, where they've gone, how it's gone, the rules, the change of the game, getting rid of fighting. Whatever you think of all those things, you can't question the business off the ice success. It's a, so that's really the core of the story. Well, Norm, in the same way that I stole your joke, you just stole my uh, intro. So if you don't mind, I'm going to set things up for the listeners. And thank you for for pointing out some of these information. Let me add to that. You can, as you know, make no mistake about it. The NHL is a big business as it continues on a growth curve that not even a global pandemic could slow down. The league is projected to generate $6.2 billion U.S. dollars in revenue this year, which would be a 3.5% increase over last season. They have outstanding media and broadcasting agreements in North America. The game is expanding globally, and their 32 franchises continue to increase in value. Most recently, this summer, the Ottawa Senators were purchased by a group led by Toronto billionaire Michael Anlauer for $950 million. Yes, that is just shy of $1 billion for a hockey team. Future expansion is looming. And after the most recently added team, the Seattle Kraken paid $650 million. The sky is the limit on future expansion fees. The player's share of the spoils also continues to grow with the CBA or collective bargaining agreement between the NHL 
and the NHLPA, or Players Association, stating that the salary cap for each team will rise to a projected $87.7 million U.S. dollars next season. So, Norm, you've alluded to this a little, but why did you write the book, and why did you choose to dissect the NHL in particular as a case study? On the Ottawa piece, before I answer that question, you mentioned the $950 million. Remember, that's U.S. dollars. I, I went to school in Ottawa. I actually own a condo in Ottawa. That's $1.3, $1.25 billion Canadian. So just for the, you know, to put it in perspective when you switch the dollars, wow, right? Like in a, one of the smallest markets anywhere. So yeah, your point, Andrew, really, really good one. So why did we write? I guess I could have answered that. I got a, a bit before, but so it was, at first we had the time and we had the opportunity and then we had a publisher in Toronto Press that I mentioned that was interested and we had the passion in the background and both of us have, and the networks to kind of get some of this this group. But we really wanted to do something different. We've written a lot together. So of the books I've done, I've done a bunch with Rick. He's done others. He's done fiction before. And so we've got, we had this kind of background. Let's give it a go. And our relationship has really worked because I'm more, I'm an accountant and I'm a doctor, a PhD in business. And he's a journalist by trade. He, he his writing ability is, uh, I think mine's good. His is extraordinary. And so we've got a great team to kind of pull that together. It's like, hey, this is some risk, right? We're going to risk hundreds and hundreds of hours of our time to see if we can get this out there and see if it goes. And it was to try to make that leap from university, as you characterized up front, to the you know the, the larger audience and what that credibility would bring. In the modern world, as you can imagine, unless you're writing Harry Potter, you're making pennies on the hour writing a book. So authors, it's that's very change. You have to do it for other reasons. So our reasons were passion, you know, attention, good for the universities, good for us. Maybe this leads to um to other opportunities and other books down the road because we really, really like it. And so those all those drivers. And I think we've also we're a really good team. I would have never done this by myself, but having you probably can relate to that. Someone you really like to work with. This is a long like all nighter kind of arduous process where you're managing jobs and family and stuff. So that was really the driver. And once we got into it, we have a lot of passion for the topic. And you kind of realize, wait, wait a minute, I've been working on this for a long time. We actually know a few things. And so, it, and now the litmus test is that people like it. We get good feedback, getting chances to speak about it, uh, your interest today. I mean, it's, it's been really great. So that would be the rationale. Excellent. And just for clarity, your co-author is Rick Burton from Syracuse University. Yes, sir. Yeah. Now, before we talk about particular sections of your book, we of course have to talk about Gary uh, Gary Bettman has been the commissioner of the NHL for over 30 years. He is the longest serving active commissioner of any pro sports league. Now, since he first got the role in 1992, he's been consistently booed by fans at the Stanley Cup presentation, but remains beloved by the owners who ultimately are his bosses. Norm, should we respect or loathe Gary Bettman? I think it depends what perspective you've come from, right? So I think we put this in the book. So if you take me, a sport business perspective, and obviously I know him, so there's a bit of that bias, I'll, I'll say that, but the extraordinary success. I mean, you can't, but he, some really tough decisions, which I think all of us appreciate in a leader, right? Like I, one of the things I mentioned, you mentioned the T1 agency part of my life. I'm a very minority owner and the main owner, Mark Harrison, who's a quite a well-known Torontonian, he has the ability like Batman to make tough decisions, thick skin. I'm not like that. You may not be like that, right? So you, but so he's he's kind of takes the ball. Roger Goodell, NFL, another great example. People are like, how did he keep his job through all these things? Well, because he works for the owners, he takes the bullets for the owners, and he makes the owners a lot of money. So take, let's go back to Batman for a second, and then we'll I'll talk about some other stakeholders too. But 
from the owner group, as you mentioned. So when when we did, this is really interesting. We have another textbook that I've done with a, a mentor of mine, George Foster at Stanford, that's kind of an MBA textbook. It's a hardcore bit. In 2016, we wrote chapters about ownership and pro sports, interviewed a lot of owners. And like most of them would tell you, unless you're in Toronto or New York or Chicago, no point don't a team unless you want to lose money. You can make, even if you break even, you could have made 20% somewhere else. It's a labor of love. Wow, has that changed? Batman and others would be part of that. Now, I mean, there's asset appreciation. You mentioned Ottawa. People are making money in Ottawa and Winnipeg. Winnipeg. And so like all of this stuff, it's down assets. There's shell companies. There's investors coming in, just keeping up with all the activity. It's become like any other capital infused industry. So what we wrote in 2016 in that book, we're doing another edition now, is wrong. You have to rewrite it. So, And and it was he solely responsible? No, but lots of people like Gary Bettman have really turned. And so what does that do to the other part of the question? If you're the hardcore fan, the traditional fan, we've seen this happen in many sports too and entertainment offerings, can't, go, can't afford to go to a Taylor Swift concert anymore. Same idea. Tickets go up, value of assets, players go up. The, the, the desire to do venues, you know, buildings like Washington just announced today, they have a lovely arena right downtown. It's not good enough. They're going to build a different one. I said, wow. And, and people are willing to support it. And so all these things are kind of happening. So he was well aware. I think the NBA background before allowed him to do that. And then the tough decisions you know, around the NHL clubs. I mean, there's people like in Hartford that aren't the biggest fans, right? Because you've lost your teams and you could go down the list and there's a variety of, of groups there. Some people that love the fighting and the rough side of the game don't like that they've moved to a less fighting game. But the average population, moms with your, you're the same. I love the fight when I was growing up in hockey. But if I go in there with my three young sons, I don't really want this watch that, oh, how do you respond to a problem? You punch a guy in the face, you spear him in the back. That's not really the right. So the hardcore fan, so it can be disenfranchised, but that one disenfranchised usually male, not always, but usually a male, was replaced by 100 fans that included a lot of females, right? So that's grown the sport. TV viewership goes up. And so it's really interesting. So you start thinking about it as a business and growth, your perspective really changes. But it has disenfranchised and bothered some some occupants. The other thing people talk about, and when you meet him in person, he's very dynamic, like like I think you are. But when he doesn't have the same kind of personality on television, or maybe it's just the way they do it, or maybe it's Part of the way Ron McLean likes to frame them. I don't know. We could talk about that. But all those pieces are there that's quite interesting. But I think if you look at it from any perspective where it's about revenue, he just got renewed again. It's not public, but the guess is he's in a 10-figure salary annually, which is a hair more than I make. I don't know if it's more than you make, but like he's in a pretty good uh, good group. So I think, and I'm obviously admitting my bias up front, but if you just go to the data, it's there. The last thing I'll say about Batman, if I have time, would be, you might remember the Globe and Mail and TSN did a, a Why Not Canada story like 2009, 2010, after the loss of their clubs, things came back, the dollar was coming up. My research was profiled in there. I was at Stanford at the time. That's where I met him because he was part of that. And just after like a quick invited me down and he's been wonderfully supportive of, of my research ever since, right? And he didn't have anything to do with this book, but he did write a foreword for us and let us use his picture and talk about it. So He's been extremely supportive of, of just the research side on, on ice hockey, which I think is indicative of someone who cares about the game too. Well, I'm absolutely going to follow yeah. up on that. Gary is all about control. He has to have control. He's extremely reticent when it comes to being out in public and giving his messages unless he has control. So I congratulate you guys. It was a real coup having Commissioner Gary Bettman write the foreword to your book. 
So how did this come about? Well, I think we asked him from our, our net, we know him, and he went through, a, as you can imagine, a number of people, and he agreed to do it. And he had wanted to look at the book first. And so you assume that he, he read it and was appreciative of what we said. We're not a critical of any group. That's that it goes back to the money ball thing. It's a very business lens. So people like you, you can ask me questions about the social impacts of things. I can give it to you. I wouldn't claim any expertise. I wouldn't do a legal case around social side of sport, but I get called a lot to do legal cases on the business side of sport. See, it's kind of outside of your thing. The thing I would say, I loved your point, Andrew, on control. We actually teach that at business schools, right? Like if you're taking on a leadership position, if you're not in control, there's a huge problem. So I don't think that's a Gary Bettman characteristic. That's a characteristic of a good leader, right? Like was Obama in control when he was president? Yes. Think of some, I won't name any, think of some politicians who didn't do so good, that gone out of control, some Canadian prime ministers, for instance, right? It's not a good sign. Companies that are struggling and having crashes, like, so you think about the BlackBerry decline, early on, the leadership was in, then they cut, so it's a really important characteristic that, that maybe he's to a fault, but I mean, he would have learned that early on, and that's something with, that any good business school would teach you better. There's a variety of definitions of control but you better be in control. Well, it's a great point. Leadership yeah. is so important. Mm-hmm. Now, in his forward to your book, Gary Bettman attempts to build his hockey bona fides by sharing his college experience at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Should Canadians accept that Gary actually knows hockey or do they have a point when they criticize him for not really understanding the culture behind Canada's national pastime? Yeah, and you can even say Canada, you can even say like the Northern US. He gets a similar response in Minnesota and New York. So, I would characterize it as the hockey-loving parts of North America versus the places where hockey is new. I think it's important for Canadians to recognize, like I live in a spot like that now, hockey is the same in Maine as it is in Ontario. It's the same in Minnesota as it is in Saskatchewan, right? there. So, But the, the new areas, which has led to the growth, so you think about Ohio and Columbus, like Columbus Blue Jackets, you think about California, you think about Florida, you think about Arizona, you think about Carolinas, et cetera. So the, I think that's the real dichotomy, and that's where... People that are kind of just indifferent because in most sports, the average fan has a hard time even naming the commissioner, right? They've started to work on those kind of things a little bit. So at that background, it's an interesting thing, like to be like for me, I was an athlete as you, you gave in the introduction. Then I'm trying, my career was to become an expert in the business of sport. One of the things I had to do in my world was kind of get people to stop thinking of me as a former athlete and thinking. So sometimes they come to, oh, really? You did sports because you do all this other stuff. So he, in his case, he had the NBA legal background. So lawyers have that already that, you know, that that branding kind of issue, if you will, did and didn't have a hockey background, hadn't played. And that's a big part of the sport, right? Because it's a kind of a rough sport. So that there's kind of a you know stripes or whatever you want to call it. So I think that's part of his his angle there is to try to convince people that yes, I understand the sport. I've been around it. Even though from a business perspective, often we advise hiring people from different industries to bring in new perspectives. And you've seen that across the leagues. The NBA, in fact, has furnished a lot of executives to other leagues because they're viewed as really smart. Makes sense to bring in these lessons learned. Exactly. Now, if I'm going to ask you about the books forward, I also sure better ask you about the books afterward, especially because it was written by Canadian hockey hero and current assistant general manager for our Toronto Maple Leafs, Haley Wickenheiser. How'd you get Haley's participation especially because in addition to everything else she's doing, she was also working her way through medical school at the time. 
Yeah. And I mean, as you can imagine with these kind of university press books and small budgets, there's no money to pay people. Like if you were some big press, you'd, you'd, you could go pay something. This was a wonderful uh, thing. And so in my career, in my travels, and we didn't get any introduction. I used to work for Sport Canada. I mentioned the government a long time ago, late 90s, early 2000s, like my first real serious job. And um, I was the consultant for Hockey Canada for, from Sport Canada. So that's the way it was structured. And I think it still is. Each kind of national sport organization had a rep who would help them navigate the system, find grants, implement language policies. And you can imagine at the time, women's hockey was just coming up. And so I, Hockey Canada really did nothing to do with the men's national team at the time because the, the, the NHLers were playing at the, at the Olympics and the World Championships. So they didn't have a national team men's anymore. So it was all about the women. So I got to know her a little bit as a player, very weakened. But it was, it was, but other than that, like just being a fan and having followed her, I, it was a, and she maybe have heard some of my stuff. I don't know, but it was a really a cold call. And I give her a thousand percent credit. She agreed to do it. She also, and Bethman too, we just did the audio book. They both recorded the audio of their forward. So now you can hear their voices, which is like, She's got a lot on her plate that's more important than, than our book. So I, I and she's been wonderfully supportive. And so I think it's I hope it's a lot of the work that I've done around sport. I've been quite involved with women's sport, been in, a volunteer with Canadian women in sport, et cetera, over the years. Hopefully that helps. But she, yeah, no reason other than I think and, and again, she I assume she read through the book to make sure she was okay with putting her name on it. And and wow, we those were when we did our consultations with the um University of Toronto Press, those were the two names at the top of the list. So we didn't have to go down a list. Those were the two people that we asked, and both of them said yes. So that maybe is a good sign that the book is reasonable or it's positioned well. But yeah, that was a wonderful thing. And she could have easily said, I'm, I, I got to go to the hospital tonight and, you know, and work. And I, I'm also, you know, riding this small little club in downtown Toronto. So yeah. Yeah. She's definitely an inspiration. And again, Amazing. kudos yeah. to you guys. Those are the, the, the forward and afterward, absolutely great people to have write them. Now, the structure of your book is really interesting. It's divided into four sections entitled Dropping the Puck, Winning the Draw, Line Changes, and the Third Period Plus Overtime. These four broad sections are then broken down further into 18 chapters that each provide actionable lessons learned. So again, I want to congratulate you. Very accessible book. Very much not you know academic or theoretical, very practical. People are going to love reading the book. I want to jump off the book and actually go through my laundry list of current NHL issues to ask you about because there will be some connections to your chapters. For sure. Let's start with growing the game globally. Now, Gary Bettman is signaling a smaller international event next February, likely with just four teams, Canada, Finland, Sweden, and the U.S., and that he is hopeful for a full World Cup in 2028. Norm, what do you understand to be the status of NHL participation in the next Winter Olympics in 2026 in Italy, which the players clearly want, but the league appears to be using as a bargaining chip? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think both sides do use it as a bargaining chip. And we've seen it in, in the past, like certainly when the games were in Sochi and the Russian, and there was, that was the first time there was talk of maybe not being back in the games because of some injuries and these things that happened. The, the Russian players were basically like, well, I'm going to quit if we can't play in the Olympics. And so and then the, the, the ones that followed, it seems that for a variety of reasons, it actually probably worked out well in the end because of the of the pandemic. So it's an ongoing piece. I, my understanding, my belief from both sides is they want to be there. The NHL also knows, and you can see the NFL doing this, the NBA's way ahead of the curve. They're on this revenue pursuit, right? And if you want to grow the game and do really, really well, 
you've got to go global. So I would be very surprised if it's not part of, of the Olympics. And so I was um, recently in at Stockholm at the Stockholm School of Economics. They hosted an event around the Leafs, Wild, Sens, and Red Wings, I think, visit to uh, to Sweden. So I was there. I got to be part of it. The book was profiled, which was great. And uh, Brendan Shanahan was one of the speakers. And there was a number of other, you know, like other GMs of the clubs and et cetera, who, um, who spoke. And it was really, really clear that they were coming in to take the Swedish Hockey League, who's interestingly enough, their mission statement is to become the second largest hockey league in the world after the NHL. So they actually have another league, which is kind of odd from a business school perspective in your mission, but they're very motivated. And it was very clear this was a partnership. The NHL had sent 75 people. This was for like before the games, there's this kind of learning, you know, university style session that is, I'm a fellow at that center. And so that, that particular piece. And so that signal, I mean, I remember going to the Canada Cups and the World Cups in Toronto way back. They're very exciting. Think of rendezvous, but that's really, really faded. And if you're going to grow a game, like they've, just like the other big major leagues, they've, they've, saturation would be too strong of a word, but getting to there in North America, right? Like sure, you can add a few fans here and there and and, but people are changing. Young people are less interested. So if you really want to grow, and hockey's got some basketball, not soccer, but it's got way more global pursuit than than football does in American football, certainly. And so, and baseball. So if you think about, we've even written a sport business journal about could there be a conference or a division in Europe at some point? Imagine a Swedish, this is Rick's quote, imagine a Swede, a Finn, and a Russian walk into a bar and they're each a multi-billionaire and they want to build a 20,000 seat arena. Well, you get one or two more of those, all of a sudden, uh, the travel is not a big deal. They're on they're on private jets and they eat steak when they're on the plane after the games, right? Like it's a totally different experience than any of us have. And so you start thinking about those kind of pieces. That's really exciting. But to get there, you got to build that brand, get that owner. So if you're an investor in another place, another country, excited. Uh, if you want to do partnerships with things, so yeah, I'm going on and on here, but I I would be really surprised if they're not. Well, let's talk NHL expansion. Do you believe in Quebec City? Will we ever see a second NHL team in the GTA Greater Toronto area? Will we see NHL expansion to Europe or to Russia? Yeah, so I'm a huge believer in, in Quebec. I would nothing love more uh, than that. I think it, w- it was a heartbreaking thing when they left. I was a Nordiques fan and uh, we have a cottage in Quebec, Paul Francais. I mean, it's very important to me that all of that would um, would happen. But I also know the, the business realities of it, right? And, and as Batman will say publicly, and 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 any if you talk to him, is that no one has ever come forward with a formal ownership interest from Quebec. So Carl Pelado talked about it publicly. Others have, but no one is actually like you saw in Winnipeg. David Thompson and company actually put forward a formal bid. Like they don't do like the other leagues do, where they have open RFPs and stuff. It's a one-off. Someone's interested. We look at them. Consider, like, think Balsilli was trying to buy a, a club. They decided he wasn't the type of person they wanted to join their club of owners. So that didn't work out. Others have done different things. Some don't have the dollars to do it. Sometimes it's a market. Sometimes, like you think about, you know, Buffalo and Toronto have shot down the Hamilton team because you don't want another team in your market. These are all legitimate decisions and challenges out there. So they have a very open, we'll explore it kind of policy. The league's at a pretty good number now in terms of scheduling a number of teams. So that, that that's so that's there. So let's say I'm completely in favor of Quebec, but you have to have an owner. So this goes back to what I mentioned before. So this was a while ago, but I was at Stanford and did that Why Not Canada thing with Dave Naylor, who you probably know, at TSN and, and The Globe at the time. And so we we dug super deep and got 
all this data and compare did looked at another team in Toronto, Hamilton, Winnipeg, and Quebec. And you could by by default also look at a second team in Montreal. So we found you could you could support four NHL clubs in Toronto, GTA, no problem. Hamilton would do amazing. Montreal could have maybe two more, for sure one more, and make a fortune. In fact, the rivalry would would help the the team, the existing team, do better. But you see the Rangers, uh, Devils, Islanders kind of dynamic, right? But the teams are don't want that. You are going to give up some of your merchandising pie. What if they do better than you? What if it, the new Toronto Toros went on won seventeen Stanley Cups in a row? I mean, there's risk for the Leafs or, and the Sabers in particular have a lot of concern because people, a lot of people drive. I did it many times, where I been Lindsay across the border to go to those games. If that stopped. That club's in big trouble. And remember, you're a group of 32 now owners. And if one of them's like, hey, this is going to, the other members of your club. So it's real. So that's the dynamic I think people need to think about. And that's what are the core criteria? Well, obviously you need a, a really good market that's um, that's going to that's gonna be interested. You have to have the feasibility piece. So do you have a stadium that's or an arena that's in a downtown area that could be enough people that are one that could be built? That's a huge stumbling block. You're going to in some cities now, not just Canada, the U.S., but some cities or, or states or provinces, people are saying, no, we're not paying for these anymore. Where for years, we just threw our tax dollars to these teams, which is irrational when you think it's a billionaire at the end of the day that, that benefits in most cases or a corporation. And so that that's, but in some places like Washington, 71% just voted they want to do it. So you've got all those things at play. So let's just assume those boxes are checked. And Quebec has kind of checked the arena box. The market is small, but hey, we're, Winnipeg found a model that worked, right? So Green Bay has an NFL team. Like, if you're really careful, you could probably make it work. The salary cap structure helps. Now we're into this thing. Would the league approve you? So that's, we had A pluses for another team in Toronto, but an F, because no one's going to let another team in Toronto, Buffalo, the Leafs combined. And then when we looked at Hamilton, same thing. We had an A minus for the market, but we had an F because no one's going to allow it to work. Whereas Quebec and Winnipeg were like C minuses and Bs, but the league would like them there. So that's an interesting, uh, and then the last piece, do you actually have an owner or syndicate of owners who has, and now you got to put in, as you said in the intro, 850 is almost a billion dollars you have to put before you even pay a, you know someone to shovel the first hole for your new arena in the ground. So it's significant. That said, then the second thing is looking at television markets and and reach. This is back to your point about global. Where is the places to grow, right? So are there certain areas in the country or either country where there's a, a fan base that's not being well-serviced? So Seattle is an amazing example. That Vancouver-Seattle rivalry is going to go. Washington hockey playing area. Now they have their own team and may take a half a generation but it's going to be it's going to be a bonanza in terms of new fans for the league. So they're kind of looking at those like that was the Gretzky move to California, obviously the flo- hockey in Florida, like so many people. Vegas, the NHL, we wrote about that in the book. What a brilliant move, right? Jump ahead of the other leagues. You go to a Red Wings game there. There's five thousand people come down or come from all over the country. They they want to come to Vegas. It makes it easy. It's perfect. So you think about those things. What's next? Is thirty two a good number? The last thing I'll say, and it's a very long answer to your question is owners care about asset appreciation. So, you know, supply and demand, very simple business concept. If you want as a league to make sure there are more cities that want clubs than have clubs, because when it comes time then to sell and owners turn over, you've seen it a lot. And now with the valuation of these clubs, there's people have fear or if it gets inherited down like the Buffalo Bills, the daughters of Ralph Buffett, they couldn't afford the tax bill if they kept the team. 
So they had to sell the team. Maybe I think they wanted to, but if they didn't want to, it was almost impossible. No bank's going to give you a four hundred and seventy million dollar billion million dollar mortgage, right, or whatever. So like these are big deals. So then you think about those kind of things. So the league likes to keep that demand. So you want a Houston and a Quebec and a Kansas City and et cetera that are out there that are hoping for a team. So if one fails, they they can move, or if someone sells, they actually have a market. Nothing makes you want to get into that nightclub more than seeing that lineup around the block. Good, great analogy. But Norm, you got me all fired up. I believe in growing the pie. You got me excited. Four teams in the GTA, two in the Montreal area, a Finland division, a Sweden division, a Russia division. I mean, growth is unlimited. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Dr. Norm O'Reilly, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Steve Coolius, Michael Landsberg, Steve Simmons, Ken Reed, Doug McLean, Rick Bive, and former Maple Leafs general manager, Jerry McNamara. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcast, or go to torontolegends.ca. I want to jump on something you did mention, and that is the NHL blazing the trail by being the first major sports league to go to Las Vegas which was followed by the NFL, and we're likely to see an NBA and an MLB team also going there soon. Was this move to Vegas sheer brilliance or a a lucky break? I would characterize it as somewhere in between. And I think this is a classic NHL um, move. And this this will be, we teach this in business school. If you're not the market leader, so let's just say, let's just narrow it to North American professional sports. So take the Premier Leagues and stuff out of it, take concerts and music out of it, which is a kind of wrong. But if we we kept it very narrow, it's a North American professional sport. The NFL is undoubtedly by miles the leader, right? Like if you if you go to any Sunday afternoon game, there's 25 to 30 million uh, North Americans watching an NFL game, an average one. And if Taylor Swift is in the audience, you know, double that, right? So I mean, it's, it, it, and if you go to the average NHL game, you know, you're in, you know, 800,000 to a million. If you get a, a Pittsburgh versus Chicago on Saturday afternoon in the U.S. or Toronto, Montreal on Saturday evening, Canada, you might get a million and a half to two million viewers, right? So you're already at 10%. Baseball's in similar numbers, NBA similar, MLB, like even their championship games, World Series, Stanley Cup, are dwarfed by an average NFL game. So put that on the table. So the NFL is there. They're t- they've been talking about Vegas. I was at some of the sessions we did. We did some NFL exec program that I was perfectly part of a long time ago when I was at Stanford. And they were already talking about these kind of moves back then. How do we get back into LA, the number two market in the United States, right? If not, you know, arguably top 10 market in the world for sports, maybe even higher. And then you think about how do we, how do we think about Vegas with all those other, the money that's there, the kind of the, the associated real estate plays, but it just took them a while to make it happen. So I think the NHL got the idea. So that may have been the bit of the luck from the other leagues that were looking at it and say, wow, look at this bag. It's growing like a weed. Got all these very wealthy people there. People want to travel there. Imagine like concerts and boxing have done it for before you and I were born, right? And so why aren't we part of this? So that took a while. And then having the, the business case to, to, have, to have a billion dollar franchise. But then, so then the brilliance. So the other half of the thing was that they moved the fastest, right? They went right at it. They didn't wait for a team to move like MLB is doing, like you know, they were going to go do it and they went and did it. So that, I think that was the, the luck was, I probably characterize as good secondary research. 
seeing what the market leader is doing. And the brilliance was being first to market. And then, of course, it didn't hurt to have them win the uh, Stanley Cup championship, which uh, I don't know if they, they, they that was on purpose. This the uh, the um, expansion draft, but they had the most the most they basically the way people put it, they got the fourth best player on every team in the NHL on their team. So no superstar, but holy smokes! So now whether that was planned or a fluke, we can all argue about. But yes, it definitely helped. But then even now, they've kept a good team, really good management. I mean, that team could have turned over. They're still good. They've managed the fan base really well. People like it. The brand is awesome, like the Golden Knights. I mean, we were with that one of the chapters, like the Kraken. Like these brands are so much better than like, I won't say any because we could guess, but you know, like some of the, the brands of, of like the, the, the early expansions and from the 60s to the 2000s, they're not very provocative and thoughtful and fitting with current. My, my kids are like Marvel guys. They, they love the Kraken, even though they've never been to Seattle and probably won't like the Kraken. I want it. Oh, it's amazing. So that like the Raptors did, right? Really, really smart branding. So I think there's a whole bunch of good pieces there, why it's been successful. Yeah. And by the way, Bettman says he plans to hold the 2024 entry draft at the amazing new Sphere in Las Vegas. And and that would be super cool. Now, of course, so I'm going to talk with my wife in a couple of weeks there. So I'm very excited. It's supposed to be an exceptional place. So I, we would, the yeah. people have been saying they're, they're so busy watching everything around them. They're not even watching the band. So it'll yeah. be interesting what your experience is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, when you talk about expansion, I think you also have to talk about contraction or somehow moving some of these teams. Why won't Gary Bettman or his bosses, the team owners via the board of governors, throw in the towel on the Arizona franchise experiment? They are currently playing in a 5,000-seat arena on a university campus in Tempe, and it just has not worked out. Yeah, great question. And I don't have any inside information. He's, I've never talked to him about this, but my, there's a couple of things that are really important. One is, as, as a commissioner, and this is kind of something we write a lot about, is that we want to not have a failed franchise on the record. Right. So that it's kind of that legacy piece. And you start thinking about like the late David Stern, who was also a friend that did some forward for one of our other books, who's a good friend of Rick's. Uh, sad that he's gone, obviously, but he was around for so long. You start getting to that 30, 25, 30 year point as a leader of an organization that this is this public facing, your legacy becomes a big deal. Like they're independently wealthy. They don't need to get a paycheck. What they they care about their their league, the owners. They're they're well in there. The owners are probably convincing them to stay. Back to our earlier conversation. So you're very focused on that. And no league likes the legacy of a failed franchise. Like if you jump on Wikipedia and, and look at uh, failed soccer leagues in in North America, there's like this giant page of all these stories of people that lost lost money. So that's there. Uh, the, the other piece that's really important why they're not you know pulling the plug is the league copy. The NFL model, largely, and the NBA part of that discussion, we read about this in the book, in the kind of the even the playing field competitive balance approach, right? Where you have a salary cap and a floor. I mean, they're, they're just now players are starting to get paid at the same level as Yager did before the salary cap came in. And so you've got that kind of piece at play. So there's a rev share. So the revenue that comes into the league, whether it be sponsorship, media rights, even visiting tickets broadcast deals, et cetera, is divided one over 32 after costs come off and shared. So if you have a, a franchise that's struggling a little bit or it's in a smaller market, like a Winnipeg would be, the impact is a lot less because you kind of have this collective. And most people agree that's why the NFL is so successful financially. There's a lot of reasons why they're 
they're the most successful watch. But if you look at financially, and that's and the NHL model is almost identical now, where you're kind of a collective, it's a soci- sociologist kind of approach to it versus this club gets more, right? You see in the EPL or Major League Baseball where, you know, the Otani sweepstakes, for instance. So it's a much more even uh, playing field. So their, their, their risk financially is mitigated, even if it's 5,000 people, because it's kind of across the board, they're slicing their costs. They can find the right ownership group and they've tried a couple. The market is good. If Vegas can work, Canadians go there. There's still a lot of positive thoughts about why hockey can work there and they just don't want to give up. And then the, the financial risk is actually quite low because you've got it spread across all the different clubs. Well, it's a great point. You don't want a loss on your record. Norm, let's continue with my laundry list of current NHL issues that I want to ask you about. Are the outdoor games losing their panache or are they still considered good content and a marketing blockbuster? That's a great question, Andrew. And I think it's uh, up for debate. So in the book, and certainly when we think about this stuff from sport in general, any kind of time you can create an asset that's new, interesting, that brings in new fans, new sponsors, new television properties. I mean, the, the Heritage Classic kind of in Canada and the outdoor game in the US, the outdoor game has found that New Year's Day time slot that was kind of open, brilliant move. So if you've got a sustainable one, that is ongoing is really popular. Think about World Juniors in Canada, regardless of where it's held, it's become a TV bonanza for Hockey Canada every year um, since they 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 kind of ramped it up in Women's World. But that that seems to be enough sufficiency. It's on an annual calendar, fits a TV streaming break that people have. It's really good. So those two, you'd argue, are good. To your point, when you start getting a little more volume, so the stadium series, and you have multiple ones, uh, as long as you're moving them around and there's some novelty, because as you know, as a hockey fan, I mean, I got to go to the, I've been to a bunch, but the one in but San Jose uh, played LA uh, in San Francisco at in Santa Clara at the 49ers stadium. I mean, it was an amazing experience. It was 60 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, 18 degrees Celsius outside. You're watching hockey in California, but it's, you're on a football field. I mean, you're for, it's a terrible hockey viewing experience. It's the spectacle. So to your point, a lot of people, it's a one and done thing. I saw hockey at Fenway Park. I saw hockey at the Big House in Michigan, that kind of thing. So you have to be really careful with these specialized kind of events. And you have to have enough of a level. A good, a good analysis is a comparison is the MLS Cup. In the early days, they started going to these neutral site games. And I went to the one in Toronto. I can't remember what year that was, 2015 or something, when it was Colorado versus Dallas, because, you know, um, LA with Beckham and New York with Thierry Henry lost in the uh, the weeks before and it was the the I've gone to lots of FC games it was the worst game there I've ever been to that's the stuff around was good but so they weren't there yet so you got to be there you got to have that special feature or fit in the schedule I think the two are really ongoing thing in the league as they've been done recently be a little more careful with the volume and the regularity of the other games uh one thing I went to the one you might have been there in um that was held in Saskatchewan you know between Winnipeg and Calgary, and then you're, you're using it to leverage into a new market. So as long as you're kind of interesting about it, keep it good. The last thing you'd want is 17,000 people to show up to a 50,000 seat venue. It would look awful. So I think they've been very smart about it so far. And there's those two pathways, like the ongoing volume, regular game one, and then those special kind of mega events, which they seem to have those two, one in each country. And I have to ask you, Norm, with your background as an assistant ice maker at the Lindsay Curling Club, have you ever been consulted on the NHL's ice making challenges? 
Well, you went deep. That was like my very first job. I think I made two seventy five an hour just to give it some. Uh, but no, we put pebble on the ice and curling. It's not very good to skate on. So at the end of the curling season, they'd always have a skating day for the curlers, and you actually have to go out and scrape off the pebble. Have you ever tried to skate on pebble? It's like being on a, a lake that's frozen and refroze, you know, so or thawed and refroze. So no, I don't think my skills will transfer there. Nor do I think anyone in curling would want to hire me back. It's been a long time. <laughs> and I see them. The equipment's gotten a lot better, too. Absolutely. Yeah. It has. There's always innovation. Now, the Professional Women's Hockey League is launching with their version of the original six in the new year. What are your expectations for the PWHL? And do you foresee them working with the NHL to implement the NBA slash WNBA model used in professional basketball? I mean, you and I could do an entire section on this topic. And we just wrote a sport business journal, which you may have seen article on this. And so I'd frame it as I have like a lot of fans and supporters of women's sport, huge hope that it's going to survive, but have deep caution about it. And, you know, there's been a litany of of failed leagues. So what's different this time and, and, and why might this time survive? Well, clearly the world is changing and women's sport and and supporting a more diverse uh, group of athletes and people in the world in general, all pursuits is there. Like that's come out of social justice and Black Lives Matter and all this really good positive stuff. So that's there. But, you know, is that going to work in this particular case? At the end of the day, somebody's got to pay the bills when it loses some money. So the the new owners, the new group, they've got some, some good things in place. They have a little bit deeper pockets. So they're from what they're saying publicly, there's a number of years of a runway. What you think about MLS, when they finally got soccer in North America to go after dozens of failed leagues, they had a nice runway. And then if you can start getting to the you know, revenue generation is higher in profitability state, then you get owners interested, et cetera. So that's there. You know, Billie Jean King's involved. There's some star power. Jada Hafford, former players involved. There's a lot of big names. There's lots of good uh, checks of box. You've got, they've, they've really targeted their cities to almost match the original six. So you're in hockey markets. That's smart, not new markets. So maybe those those pieces can kind of fall. There's a lot of, you know, of, of sympathy, I think, from the previous failed league. So Canadian Tire is uh, involved. And I'm saying they're making, but it's clearly not a pure ROI play yet because the league's just starting. So one of the perplexing things that a lot of us in academia have looked at with women's hockey in particular, and it's common in other women's sports, with the exception of golf and tennis. So we can talk about those in a second. But the women do not support largely women's sport as spectators. And so if you dig into the um, to the the rating, so I mean, just some general ratings points from the previous uh, league that failed in Canada. Their typical TV audience when they were on a reasonable slot was six to ten thousand viewers. I mean, NHL men get, you know, if it's the least in the Canadians on Saturday night, they get 2 million. If it's, you know, an average game, they're getting, you know, around a million, 500,000, depending on the night who's playing, et cetera, and how you count the streaming. So you're talking about a fact, an enormous difference in interest. And if you dig into those people that are watching women's hockey, it is a very, very select group. It's a people, mostly men, not all, but mostly men who love hockey. So you probably know some people like this. Hey, you might be like this, but it's a very small group that no matter what it is, university hockey, you know, college hockey, AHL, IHL, some really good young players, they just love the game. But most fans want to see the big show. You think about NFL Europe, it failed massively, cost billions of dollars. So it was second tier football. They go over there with the premier tier football, the NFL, and they sell out the stadiums, right? So it's an interest. So that kind of dichotomy is there. So you, how do you, 
first of all, elevate the the attractiveness of the product to start reaching other markets than those die-hard hockey fans who are mostly men who want to watch it. And how do you get it to, to, you know, to broaden to be more interesting? And so golf and tennis have clearly done that. Their audiences are are still more male than female, but a decent chunk. Right? Well, women don't like sport. No, no, no. If you look at the Super Bowl rate, ratings or the NHL playoffs rate, those big events start getting close to 50-50. And so you're, you're getting other audiences that are coming in because the, the gold medal games, some of the most watched uh, sporting events in Canadian history are the gold medal women's games. 8 million, 11 million people watch some of these games. And they're a nice mix of 50-50. So it's not that it's not possible. It's how do you kind of create that interest? I think people care about it. They want to see it. The element, the game has gotten really good. The players are exceptional. We talked about Haley earlier. You know, they're, 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 the, the quality of hockey is good. So it's attracting those hockey fans. How do you kind of keep growing it? So how do you do that? Well, obviously, you, you have to have stars. You have to have really competitive product, which they're there. So shrinking the number of teams, high-quality game, really, really good. Do they need to look at the rules or anything? Do they want to play around with how it's played? Do they want to make it more aggressive, less aggressive, more fast? More fast, they say faster, slower, et cetera. All those kind of are important. How do you elevate the stars? In hockey, we have this huge problem that everybody wears a helmet. That's a good thing for concussions and health and everything. It's terrible for marketing. So if you look at all of the top you know, athletes, they're no, very, well, Tom Brady's the one exception, but most football players are never at the top of the list in terms of endorsements. Most hockey players, tennis players are there, basketball players are there because you can see them. And and women, you know, it, it, there's there and there's I mean, you talk about there's people debate about the importance, but attractiveness, charisma are all variables that drive interest in certain products from people. So it is. I'm going on and on here because I've got tons of hope. It's a huge lift. There's very smart people of all. In fact, I have a number of former students that have been hired by the new league. So we're very excited about it. It's it's going to be tough. They have a long runway. So if you have some of these smarts that can build some of those assets, I hope we're talking you and I in 10 years about how this is the first professional women's league, you know, beyond the WNBA that's worked. So the second part of your question, the NHL has been very clear so far. No, they're not going to get involved. And, and that's not their, their culture is different than the NBA. The NBA take a lot of risk. You look at esports. They jumped right in and started their own league and spent a bunch of money. The NHL waited till it built up, formed a partnership. So it's, it's a they're a higher risk group. We talked about Vegas earlier, how they waited for others and they jumped on it to go in. So that doesn't surprise me. And I, I it would be a while to come. And as we've seen with the Hockey Canada um, challenges, I mean, hockey's got some work to do on gender issues, huge work. And so hopefully that will also help as time goes on. But there's a culture there that, that takes some time to change, right? Well, here's another hot button for you. The Ottawa Senators, Shane Pinto was suspended for half a season for gambling-related infractions that have not been disclosed to the public and apparently did not include breaking league rules concerning betting on hockey. This all happening despite the fact that his very own hockey helmet prominently features the sponsorship logo of a major sports gambling company. We've got a very potent mix of no transparency and apparent hypocrisy. Has the whole Shane Pinto situation been a mess? Gambling is an interesting one. I mean, clearly, it's, it's a public relations mess, and I agree with you on the transparency. I think my hope, I don't have any inside information. My hope would be that they put this penalty in place because he did bet on something that benefited himself or his team or his sponsor. So that would be my assumption. Otherwise, me to assume he'd have an appeal, et cetera. Now, we don't know that's true. We can argue about it. People say different things. But 
that, that, that would be the hope. So that's not the case. Oh my God, this is terrible. But if that is the case, then it becomes, a, to your point, a communications debacle. And you know, one of the things we've all learned over time, and there's issues, but I mean, and, and certainly in the current world, coming out with the truth, even if people don't like the truth, and look at what's happened south of the border, right? Seems to be uh, something people appreciate. A lot of people, like, even if they don't like it, you don't kind of bury it. So that's been a hockey thing. We mentioned the Hockey Canada example. There's a real uh, cultural thing to kind of keep things guarded. Leagues haven't had to disclose a lot of these things. I mean, Major League Baseball, as you know, has got special status. So I think that issue, and I don't know anything more than that is there. Just you kind of hope that those in the position are making really good decisions and that the penalty was justified. And so, I mean, I loved how Brendan Shanahan used to come on and when they did the player stuff, and actually, I thought that was brilliant. That's like, you know, rugby, the, the referees are, are, if we watch the Rugby World Cup, it's like, here's what I saw, here's what I call. So maybe you like it or you don't, but you're not guessing, right? Like, why, why did they get a foul? Like, basketball's a frustration as a Raptors fan, right? You see, like, why did they call that? If someone got on and told me, okay, sure, let's, I, I agree or disagree, but that was your opinion. That was the rule made sense. So that, that's kind of all there. But I'd like to just comment on gambling in general. And this is really interesting because, I mean, think about the NBA example. David Stern, who we also mentioned earlier, was vehemently opposed. We're never, ever doing this as bad for society. Adam Silver, very different perspective. And so one of the things that the people that have pushed forward said, well, you know, sure, gambling is, is there. And gambling does cause a lot of bad things, right? The house wins more than the player. People lose marriages, homes, mortgage payments, rental payments. We try to educate people to do the right thing. So we know that bad outcomes happen from gambling. But those bad outcomes, people would argue in favor with it. Well, they were happening anyways. Like, oh, gambling's legal. Well, you and I could have gambled on the Leafs for the last 50 years. Our grandfathers could, like, it's not like it's new. It's now just, it's regulated. So some people say, well, now at least we know that Norm is spending money he shouldn't. So we can try to intervene. We can have some education programs. We get, et cetera. We can let people know the odds. We can make sure they're not getting messed around by some bookie who's giving them inappropriate odds or scraping off the top. So there's that. Those are some of the thoughts, if you believe so. So to take that for what it is, we've now gone down. It's like marijuana, right? We've now legalized it. The arguments that most people would say are better having it for than against. But clearly, there's some cons when you put these things into practice. And into play. And so we're seeing some of that. So I don't know in this particular case, but there's money at play, lots of money. And it's can go there. And so, I mean, there's been a lot of academic work done on this. And, and it's really interesting because there's, there's a number of cases out there where they know because someone is admitted to it in court where they bet on a game. And it's very common in tier two sports, not the top tier sports, where an official or a goaltender or a coach will take a a amount of money to throw a game. And these people have analyzed it so that Declan Hill's his name. He's a Canadian. He used to be on CBC, did his thesis at Oxford. Others have done it too. He calls it like the bag of cash syndrome. Like players will do, if they get $25,000 bag of cash, they'll do things that destroy their whole career. It just doesn't make any sense, but you get cash. And see, he says, I can watch a game and I can tell you if they've been, um, if someone's cheated or not, because the goalie will always give up. They don't want to get pulled. So they give up the goal in a certain period of time. The coach will make the decision. So he, and the, the officials, which have been caught in the end, it's like, that's all there. So bad things happen with gambling. So when you get that, you know, these things are going to happen. So you'd hope the league would be there. And that's why you'd like to see, as you said, a little more transparency. I think the fans would be happier with that because clearly there's some reason that they felt this was a justifiable penalty. Maybe you're better off sharing it. I'm no lawyer. Maybe there's a reason they didn't, but yeah, I would agree. Well, money always talks, as you know. And it's funny when you mentioned David Stern, the NBA, it wasn't that long ago 
one of the conditions of the Raptors getting the franchise was pulling basketball betting off of ProLine. So yeah, it's exactly. crazy how the world has changed. Crazy. crazy. Pride tape being used on NHL hockey sticks was banned. And then after an uproar, the ban was rescinded. Tempest in a teapot or the NHL was not reading the room, so to speak. Yeah, I, I would say a, a good decision in the end, a very bad decision at first. And particularly in a league, but I think it's indicative of you and I talked about it, the culture of hockey. I wouldn't even say the league, but the culture of hockey has been very heterosexual male. I mean, I grew up in those dressing rooms in Canada, you know, right? Like it was uh, some of the things I think about now is like, oh my God, you'd never talk or say or do any of those things today. So a lot of these people grew up in this really macho, white male, heterosexual culture, right? So that's all there. And I think in the current environment, we've gotten to a place in 2023, almost 24, where people can express themselves how they want, right? Gender is fluid. Sexuality is fluid. And I think most people, there's exceptions, kind of are okay with that. So for me, it's like when, when so if someone wants to express their support of a, a certain group, then yes, of course, it's when you kind of prevent that. So to your point about limiting, I think they've rethought that really quickly and they did correct it, but the problem was the message went out really fast. And then some players obviously were like, are against it because they're, they don't believe in that the religious backgrounds, the way they were raised, certain countries view homosexuality, all those kind of things are different. Well, that's fine. You can opt out. For me, it's as simple as, and we do a lot of this in sport, right? Is opt in, opt out are really good ways to look at things. And you as a league or, and I do a lot of volunteer work on associations, like get the hell out of the way, right? And, and you let people make their decisions. So I think that, and, and they self-corrected. And who knows if there's a players association push to limit it. I mean, there's very strong opinions on players that have lots of resources. And clearly some of them came public. So you can assume there's a large group who are homophobic or don't like or whatever. And so that's all there. But, and so that there was probably a whole thing that happened that you and I never saw, I'm guessing. And that probably led to that little delay, but that little, you know, stutter step back to, we talked about before the way people respond to communications these days, that first nugget you hit sets the tone of oh, the NHL, a bunch of bigots for blah, blah, blah. Even though maybe there was a whole bunch of factors behind the scene and they corrected it relatively quickly. The ongoing feel is very much that they, you know, they didn't read really the room and it's a very antiquated view and it doesn't help hockey Canada. That's for sure. This day and age and any social justice related gender race anything it's got to be fluid it's got to be open and then you give your your players now some people argue oh there's a there's a performance advantage which i mean i've used multiple color tapes on my stick for many and never helped me become a very good hockey player so i don't think anyways but if there was a legitimate performance that's a different story right but that's clearly not the case with the color of tape i mean teams have wore different colored socks and stuff for years so yeah anyways well Perception is reality, and clearly it's the communication that uh, dictates whether you're seen on the right or wrong side and of things. Yeah, I think, and then making that communication, there's so many stakeholders now and such ferocious attention. You have to make this decision so quickly, but engage so many entities, think with the Players Association just as one, and then the media's on you within seconds, right? So maybe they went as fast as they could, yet they still look like they didn't read the room, right? It's a great point you make. Now, the NHL, as we've discussed, huge business growing rapidly. The grassroots growth of ice hockey is an issue. While player participation costs are up, youth registration levels continue to trend downwards in Canada. 
Is this an issue that the NHL is or should be concerned about? Very much. There's this feverish group of like GTHL level, you know, like kids that are going crazy, but the overall population of hockey players is declining. So Hockey Canada, a lot, I've been aware, they've been aware for a long time. So they've done a number of things which hopefully have mitigated that trend. I mean, it's not a surprise. As other sports explode, as it's harder to play hockey outdoors now. I mean, because of the weather changes and and everyone seems to want to play indoor, it's formalized so much. Everybody thinks their kids go to the NHL. So if they're not, if you just want to play for fun, you know, you can. Like, how soon are we going to have body contact? Well, what kind of 13-year-old is learning how to skate and wants to get their head plowed off, right? I'm going to go play soccer, thank you very much. So, like, all of this stuff is, has been happening. So, yeah, it's a huge concern. They're very aware. The girls' hockey spiked, but then it's kind of been very flat, as you probably know. And so that's kind of helped. But it's now, and in the next, I think it may have happened already, but in the next few years-ish, there'll be more kids playing hockey in the United States than in Canada. Already, if you look at NHL players, right now it's like 290 are Canadian, 200 are American, 66 are Swedish. That's the number three. They have a population smaller than Toronto. So the participation is going down, but our development system is terrible proportionally versus these other countries. And the and it won't be long before like the super duper stars are not Canadians. Because it was a time when you and I were were, you know, young men, not even kids, but it was 90% Canadian in the NHL. So all of those things are spiraling together. And so there's this ferocious push for high performance, but that just hurts the participation fun level. They've really taken, they've tried. But a lot of the fun has been gone from hockey, right? Because it's so competitive. And that's why I got involved in it. So there's a lot of issues at play. They're very aware of it. So much of that, I mean, it was going to go down no matter what because of competitive opportunities, the internet, video games, et cetera. But they're, they're losing share to other sports within that declining piece. So they're very aware of it. And it's it's a big challenge. They've hopefully mitigated it. But going forward, and then with what's happened now, more recently, like if you're a, a parent of a daughter, are you thrilled to put your girl in hockey right now? I mean, that there's no question that that loses participation, right? It's like concussions in football. Tackle football is the most popular spectator sport we talked earlier in North America by a mile, but nobody that watches it ever played or like a small little proportion or really wants to play maybe some flag football, but they love to watch it. So that spectator part of hockey, booming, NHL booming to your point andrew participation in trouble you know still great but what's the implications of that long term and the fact it shouldn't hurt the nhl at all if you use the nfl as long as enough good players are coming in sure the league might be 75 percent swedish in 2040 but it's still going to be this you know this this thing that people like to watch it's an exciting fast wonderful game but the participation side is, has gone down well and that'll tie in nicely if global expansion does happen Last on my laundry list to ask you about, which is neither here nor there, whatever became of the aforementioned Jim Balsilli, does he still harbor dreams of NHL franchise ownership? I don't know. I haven't heard from an, from an ages. Now, they were, he cashed out, well, they were forced to cash out, the two owners, and did very well. From what I know, I don't know anything, but what I know of pro sports, and we've talked to a lot of these owners, right? We've written about this. This isn't anything that's that's private, but it's, it, it, it operates much like a cartel, right? Like, and that's not a great analogy because people think cartels is negative, but think about like a collective of individuals with a common goal 
that they share in the revenues. We talked about that earlier. And they really make all the decisions. We talked about that when the commissioner relationship. The commissioner is the chief executive that they hire. So much like a board of directors of a national sport hockey Canada, except there's no money there. It's about hockey and it's not for profit. This isn't a for-profit environment. And they're all looking to maximize revenues and asset plus win and do all these kind of things. And so in that particular environment, if they've decided you don't join this club, you're not joining that club. And you saw with Rush Limbaugh in the US when the NFL said, no, thank you. Trump no, thank you. So there's, there's a number of cases where the owners, and it's not like it's government. Be like, well, how come? Hey, this is not like the, the U.S. government doesn't have no role with the NFL. The Canadian government has no role with the NHL or, or vice versa. So it's a, it's a private club. It's like, hey, I want to be a member at the the Augusta National. Well, those those members, even though they're the masters in the biggest golf tournament in the world, it's a private event that's got private members who would vote, right? So it's a private club. So it's very similar to that. So clearly, for some reason, Early on, he was a big fan, like he's coming in with all this peace. But he, from what the, the public reports are, what we kind of would guess is he wanted to, to move the club. He, whoever he was going to buy, he was going to move. And we, you and I talked about this earlier. You made some great points. They don't they, they don't want to move, right? They don't want to move the club. So if he's someone that they think that's a risk, they just remove him from their, their list. So I don't think they would ever consider him again, even though he might want to. So. He really has disappeared. It's very, it's interesting yeah. as a side note that Blackberry blockbuster movie came out last year. And even though it's a dramatization, the character playing Jim Balsilli came off really horrible. Like yeah. the interactions yeah. with the NHL, he really looked horrible. And yet I've noticed he's really been promoting the movie. So I'm not sure. Uh-uh. That's some good things. I mean, if he funds a, a huge re- institute at Laurier University, the Balsilli Institute, like he, he, they're both very philanthropic. I mean, I, I think at some level, they're, they're, he was extremely brilliant. I think what, what I mean, and there's been business cases written on BlackBerry. A lot of the staff and other shareholders, people that lost fortunes, mostly Canadians, feel that his pursuit of the NHL club hurt BlackBerry. Like if if you're in this massive growth stage and you're trying to take on Apple when they made that decision to go head to head with Apple, which is a big decision, right? like you're running at Scott Stevens and you decide to try to take him on as a hit. Like that's a big risk. Yet then you're looking out of your corner of your eye because you're trying to do this. That's the thought. Like why was this, who was the marketing brains behind the thing, love him or hate him. Then he was so focused on, you know, wooing NHL owners, let him join. Was that a factor? And maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But that's one of the things the Harvard business case talks about. Well, it's a very interesting story and an interesting guy. Norm, do you already have a next project in mind? What are you working on next? Oh, we've got always got a gazillion things, but this book has led to an interesting, uh, really interesting for us. I mean, you, your first question was textbooks to this. And so kind of an unforeseen outcome is in, uh, a book agent in New York City reached out to us afterwards and said, I think you guys are onto something here. And she just helped us ink a deal with a big global publisher on a similar version on soccer. Oh. So very excited about that. I've got a whole bunch of uh, always doing stuff. I mean, it's so neat to be in uh, in sport and looking at all these things. We're doing some work on NIL, the name, image, and likeness here in the U.S. around college, which is actually impacting hockey significantly because hockey players are pretty sought after in a number of those areas you and I mentioned earlier, and a lot of them are Canadians. So they're benefiting significantly such that some athletes are opting not to go in the NHL draft, even though they would get drafted in the first or second round. Because they figure they can do better in college, get their degree, plus get paid, play more, develop more, not ride the bus in the AHL, and then you know get their degree at Brown or Harvard, wherever they are, 
and actually make more money. Is that amazing? So, I mean, NIL people talk about it all the way, but for me as an athlete-centered person, this is so good for athletes. Like finally, the resources are going to athletes. Now, if we could hold the whole system together, there's obviously risks, but what a great thing for athletes overall, right? Like, so, so if you believe in athletes, which I do, it's a great thing. There's issues, but it's a great thing that hockey players, women's hockey a little bit, but that will come. That will come. Once the pro league gets going, pathway, it'll come. Fantastic. Well, NIL, it'll be a great, very topical thing for you to work on. If you have a social media presence, where can we best follow you? I'm pretty active and I've got a pretty good following. So I'm on LinkedIn and X, formerly known as Twitter, are my kind of main main platforms. I usually just share my, my research there and things we publish. So if you are interested, those are the two places. I'm uh, no no Justin Timberlake, but I got around 10,000. So I'm very proud of that and happy to have other people join and definitely don't bother anybody. But if you're interested in these topics and it's not the, the sexy on the ice stuff, it's the the less sexy off the ice stuff. But some people do find that very interesting, right? Well, certainly I do. The audience does. And I do want to thank you for your time today. So again, the book is called Business the NHL Way, Lessons from the Fastest Game on Ice. And its updated version is available from its publisher, the University of Toronto Press at utorontopress.com. By the way, big shout out to UTP publisher and CEO, Jessica Mosher, who has been a past guest on this podcast. I don't know if she plays hockey, but she definitely knows publishing. Norm, I want to thank you again for taking all the time and wish you uh, continued success. Thank you, this is wonderful and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thank you. I absolutely hope we can. And to the listeners, on behalf of Dr. Norm O'Reilly, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.